Hello, and welcome to Ludo Narrative Dissidents. This is episode 10, or Mirror Mode, episode 1. Uh, one of our stretch goals for our Kickstarter was to do a Mirror Mode, where we would do an episode for each of uh, the three co-hosts here, uh, myself, Ross Payton, uh, Greg Solzy, and uh, James Wallace, as we uh, look at our own games, hence the term <laughs> Mirror Mode. And so for you made it first... sound like yourself was Greg Stolze there for a second. Oh yeah, I, I was. I was concerned. <laughs> you, yeah, you don't want that. Yeah, I'm Ross Payton. Uh, I have not gone through the room of renunciation and become uh, a different game designer. Uh, so uh, yeah, we're doing Unknown Armies in this episode. Uh, we're doing the third edition. In the next episode, we'll look at Baron, uh, the Adventures of Baron Munchausen, the Woot. storytelling game from James. Uh, and finally, uh, on episode uh, 12, we'll be doing Base Raiders, my uh, dungeon-powered uh, superhero uh, role-playing uh, game. And then, of course, for our final episode, we will be looking, we'll be doing some kind of actual play. I believe we're, we've settled on the Dueling Fops of Vendemir. Which is always fun. Yes. Uh, which is a, Greg's newest game. Yeah, <laughs> and I've never played it with anybody who had a British accent, so <laughs> I can't help but think yeah, Americans a real are... British accent. That is <laughs> no, not even a fake one, not even a bullshit <laughs> British accent. Anytime I roleplay a British character, I cannot hold the accent for more than a sentence or two. Anytime I do an accent, and I love doing accents, it just rambles all over Europe. Um, it's. Yeah. You know, it's like, wasn't your character Italian just last seen, and now he's French, and I'm picking up German W's, and I'm like, we're playing the Dungeons and Dragons, it doesn't matter, everything is artificial. I have a similar thing reading bedtime stories to my, my youngest, where any rural character is usually, I usually try and start them off as Cornish, but by the end of the session, they'll be either Welsh or Scottish or Southern Irish or, or just, <laughs> I can't keep the accent. Can't keep Narnian. Um. <laughs> well, I'm, glad, I'm glad I'm not alone. Um, yeah. But we we should dive into we uh, should. the game uh, because Unknown Army. My baby. A, a beautiful game. I, I, I played quite a few sessions of it and I, I thoroughly enjoy it. Who better than the author, <laughs> the creator, Greg Stolze? The co-author. Give us elevator pitch of Unknown Armies before we uh, dive into the questions. All right. Unknown Armies is a game about broken people trying to fix the world. It is set in putatively the modern era, but... It is a magicalized version of reality, and it was in some ways made as a an answer to Call of Cthulhu's cosmic nihilism horror mm -hmm. in that it is deeply humanist horror, and the idea is that the most powerful thing in the entire universe is human belief, and that's why things are so bad because every bad thing you experience someone thought it was a good idea and that people should be dealing with this uh and so you get characters in in unknown armies are often extremely marginal types and have difficulty dealing with normal everyday stuff because they have seen a deeper weirder fiercer reality is that a good start? We can get into yes. adepts and avatars and 
the idea that the cosmos is actually a poorly run uh, representative democracy a little later. Yeah. So uh, the, you hit upon the, the core reason uh, I think I love Unknown Armies as a game so much because it is actually fairly unique in modern horror RPGs. Modern horror is probably my single favorite genre of tabletop RPG uh, because you can do so much with it. And uh, it's, you know, there's so much, <laughs> there's so much gameable material out there in the real world. And most games either take the cosmic horror route, as you mentioned through Call of Cthulhu Delta Green of weird cosmic baddies causing things or uh, some version of Christian uh, uh, beliefs that demons from hell are causing it. You know, Vampire the Masquerade, literally we have Cain from the Bible being the progenitor of vampires. Um, so uh, in which case humanity takes a backseat to these very powerful mystical beings that are inhuman. Um, you know, angels, demons, Cthulhu, whatever you call it. But uh, the tagline for Unknown Armies is you did it. Uh, the, the collective you. And so uh, that, that emphasis on everything is human. Everything is from a human uh, is really interesting, really evocative. And uh, so much of modern horror really revolves around a human focused horror. Like it's not cosmic things. It's a ghost. It's a, you know, um, a person, a weird sorcerer, weird, <laughs> some weirdo doing some weird occult thing. Uh, and it's bad. Uh, so somebody wants somebody who should not have power wants power and is willing to go too far to get it is mm -hmm. a really robust framework for a lot of modern horror stories. Uh, you know, a lot of past ones too. Mm -hmm. a, yeah. a lot of stories generally. I mean, it's one of the great drivers of, of you know strong characters, interesting bad guys, interesting good guys in fiction as as well. Um, and I think it's it's very primal, and everyone can immediately relate to it. Even if we don't empathize with it, we understand where it comes from, because I think everyone's felt that desire for power themselves at some point. Uh, whether by doing mad, arcane, possibly utterly violent, sexually degraded, filthy things to do it, that's another matter. Mm -hmm. There is, I was going to say, this is particularly uh true of writers and creative types. I'm, I'm thinking of a quote from Anne Lamott, who said, people say you shouldn't write to get revenge, but I would in all sincerity assert there is no other real reason. Every good writer I ever knew was somebody who had been or who felt that they had been unfairly silenced in their life. And so... Unknown Armies posits that the characters are people who have felt that the traditional, you know, normal accepted routes of getting things done just aren't cutting it or aren't available to them. And so they are going to go farther. Uh, the, the premise is all the premise that's hard baked into the beginning of third edition, particularly, is there is something you have have to do. You, the player group, have a collective objective. You are going to either get it or abandon it at tremendous cost. But the way things are now is intolerable to you. There's a problem you got to fix. Mm -hmm. 
So it's uh, it's a little bit like the George Bernard Shaw quote about um, how does it go? Reasonable people accept the world as it is. Unreasonable people insist that the world must change to fit their desires. This is why all progress is made by unreasonable people. Uh, so, yeah, I think we're now going into what the game does, because that group of unreasonable people in uh, Unknown Armies is called a cabal. Uh, and that is the uh, group of player characters. What the game does is uh, the standard rules sort of posit. Uh, well, that's good anymore to how the game does. The game is modern horror uh, using a percental system. Player characters can play people who are totally normal, uh, may have one or two weird things, uh, or adepts or avatars, and we'll get on what those are a little bit. And there's a whole system for running weird occult modern horror uh, that is human focused. So, yeah. And that is what it, I would, in a very, very brief sense. But yeah. What I would talk about with what it does, um, I think Unknown Armies is a character-focused game, and I've tried very hard to make it that, especially in 3rd edition again. I want it to be interesting no matter what the characters decide, whether they succeed or fail. I want you to be so involved with your character and to understand them deeply on many levels and their sort of, you know, their internal psychological state is the core of the mechanics of how you do a lot of things. And so it the the as the game changes your character, your character changes to adapt to the game. And there is a risk that your character will get so chewed up by events. I mean, your character might just die because it's a role-playing mm -hmm. game and uh, so it goes. But there's also the possibility that after you've just seen so much and in suffered so much and endured so much and had so many shocks that you lose your ability to feel anything and your character becomes much less of the passionate, obsessed weirdo that they start as and turns into this sort of burnt out case who's just sitting there going, well okay, uh, you know, it's a ghost. It's not like I've never seen a ghost eat someone's face off before. And you just, you kind of get paralyzed by your own emotional encumbrance. In mm -hmm. the most recent campaign I played, my, I, my character lasted long enough to get very good at almost everything he was doing, but at the same time had undergone so much psychological trauma that he's in this terrible state and he's just trying to get he's just trying to get help and trying to get help and you know has found this mentor that he can tell his uh and, and this is all mechanized is you know here are the mechanics for how you become less of a husk mm -hmm. and he's trying to engage them and there's just so much going on and it's like no man you can't you can't make therapy you can't get away from this to go talk out your feelings so it's it's really it, it's horrible and i love it it's doing what i kind of foresaw it would do but on the subject of how it how it does it specifically or, or what it does um this is 
Structurally, in many ways, it's a surprisingly conventional role-playing game. If you zoom way out and look at the the structure and the GM and the players and all the rest of it, it has attributes. They are, Greg, you, you mentioned shocks already. They are specifically called shocks. They are not your strength, intelligence, wisdom. They are helplessness, isolation, violence, the unnatural, and self, which is a really potent combination of things to be essentially gauging yourself against when you're going up against the the universe. Um, it's a really, I mean, I, if, if, if I had been putting this book together, I would have made a lot more of that. It's kind of buried somewhere on, on page seven, the first mention that these, these are essentially your attributes. And then there's the notch system, which I think you could probably explain much more concisely than I can. All right. So you have these five gauges that measure how messed up you are by what you've seen. And when you – so one of them is violence, and violence is the easy one to understand. Suppose you have a very low violence rating. Uh, it doesn't take much to shock you. If you see someone you – know, if someone just punches you, it may incur a psychological shock that's worse than the physical shock. Whereas, you know, a couple of years later when your character has survived knife fights and seen people get tortured – Having someone punch him is just, you know, it, he does, it doesn't even raise his blood pressure because he's become hardened to the stimulus of violence. And what this means is that when you confront violence, you are much less likely to lose your composure and be paralyzed or run away screaming. But by the same token, people can often tell when you're very, very hardened to violence because you do not react normally. And if you get too hardened to too many things, you lose your ability to passionately engage with things. One of the rules is that you have passions, which are the thing that always makes you angry, the thing that always scares you, and the thing that always brings out the best in you. And when you fail a role involving one of these things, you can get a re-roll or you can change your role to make it succeed or succeed better once per session until you burn out. Once you burn out, you just can't muster the willpower to get that re-roll or role improvement. That's the, the place where my character's at now. He's just... <laughs> been too shocked and has not pro been able to process all the horrors he's endured of, you know, seeing his friends get kidnapped and seeing people die in bizarre and horrible ways and seeing his friends betray him. So he's, he's in, he's in a bad state, which is one of the bad states that unknown armies can put you in. The other thing that I did with the gauges in this is that characters have identities, which are these broad areas of ability. But if you don't have an identity that carry that that covers an action you want to do, like I want to climb over this fence, or I want to punch Steve, or I want to talk my way out of this parking ticket, you have um, oh, what did I even call them? I should have looked at this. But they're based on the gauges. <laughs> Features? Feature. No, it's uh, skills, right? Or abilities. Abilities. Uh, it's got to be abilities. Yeah. yeah. Your abilities. I'm looking at the um, so contents right now. Your yeah. abilities are based on your gauges. And 
there are good abilities that get bigger the lower your gauges are, and there are bad abilities that get uh, higher the higher, the more shocks you've you've become hardened to. So again, with violence, yeah. it's like uh, you know the the associated positive ability with violence is connect. You can connect to people when you are not a violent person, when they feel safe with you, they will open up, they will share their inmost feelings. And the negative ability with that is struggle. So even if you have no training, if you've been through a lot of violence, you're a mean fighter because you will bite and kick and uh, do what you have to do without hesitation. But people get flinchy around you because they can tell that you are semi-feral. And so I, I thought that was a really nice uh, balance. And they've, you know, they've got all of those. Uh, all, yep. all of the gauges have those linked abilities that change. And as you are, as you become a harder, tougher person, you inevitably lose ability at skills that are or at at traits that are the way normal people ordinarily deal with their problems in a you know mature rational fashion yeah uh the shot gauges uh and as we mentioned there there are five of them uh helplessness isolation self unnatural and violence um when people when i've seen discussions that bring up unknown armies in various RPG message boards, uh, discords, what have you. Uh, this is the thing that gets brought up first, even when, uh, because uh, this is the thing people are, who criticize the call of Cthulhu, you know, Delta green style sanity system as basically mental ablative hit points. Um, you know, there's got to be a better way. Well, this <laughs> is the better way. And uh, thank so this you. Is, this is, I mean, this, if there, if I had to name the, like the one legacy of unknown armies more than anything else, it would be the shot engages because this has shown there is a way to represent, uh, the, the, to make game mechanic wise, uh, what mental trauma does to people or like how it is not just a single, <laughs> it's not just a single number and it has a variety of effects on people. Um, so the the shot gauges and then matching it to um, your gauge system to abilities, which is uh, an idea you've used before uh, in a dirty world and better angels. Um, uh, yep. Which and it, and I think this is the best implementation of it because, uh, like your example of violence, like yeah, it just it it makes sense on a narrative level and it it also sort of defeats power gaming because oh I want to be a tough and badass who's uh, really cool. Well, if you do that, you'll get to you know twenty five hard notches, and you'll be you'll that's not going to be good for your character. And well, I want to be fighting. I'm not. Gonna or you just take an you just take an identity that's really good at fighting. But if you right. do that, that has to be core to who you are. And it's like, okay, why are you so good at fighting? Are you like just a boxer, an MMA guy, and how? Uh, you know, when you define that, you have to give it features other than, oh, I punch hard. Uh, but, you, you know, it is not impossible to be just a big, raw, bare-knuckle boxer. Mm -hmm. But then you need other identities, too. You need other things that you're about. Yeah. 
And I think also like matching like struggle to, you know, one of the gauges, um, one of my, you know, one of the Ludo narrative dissident things I noticed in a lot of tabletop role-playing games, characters are either spend a lot of skills and re- character resources to become very good at fighting or they're absolutely harmless. Um, and that's not reality. Like untrained people kill each other barehanded all the time in the real world. You know? <laughs> yes. Usually by accident because they don't know what they're accident. doing. Exactly. Like two guys get drunk and neither of them has added any fight training. They're both office workers and he grabs a bottle and breaks it over the other guy's head. And guess what? That's <laughs> puts the guy in the hospital or kills him. Or and, you fall down some stairs or you hit the rabbit punch spot against something hard and your neck breaks. Yeah. People are both extraordinarily durable and extraordinarily fragile, all depending on circumstance. I I remember Caleb was, uh, Caleb Stokes uh, was playtesting his uh, zombie RPG red markets. And in the first draft of it, you couldn't make a skill check unless you had uh, at least one point in that ability. So people, untrained people, couldn't punch one another. And I was like, Caleb, that's not <laughs> going to work. So, uh, you know, and like a lot of RPGs, I've, I've read scenarios where it's like, oh, here's the serial killer. And he's got, you know, basically ninjutsu and all these special forces training. That's why he's dangerous to the player characters. When like real serial killers are just some dude who uh, has that, all those violent noshes and is, uh, 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 yeah, so. Um, real, real serial killers are people who have the cheat code of, oh, you know, I, I can find someone who will trust me. I can, I can play on social expectations to make this person go off alone with me and rather than kick up a fuss. I mean, right. most yeah. serial killers are very careful about picking people who can't overpower them. You never hear about a serial killer whose victim class is bodybuilders. Yeah, on an armies with these gauges and these and these these uh, abilities, opposing abilities um, really solves a lot of narrative and structural problems uh, with uh, modern horror or in role-playing games. So um, yeah, it's very good. I mean, even if you don't, even if you don't like modern horror as a genre, even if you're, you're not going to play this game, it's worth reading unknown armies just for the, just to, to see the gauges. Uh, and, uh, read well, stop, stop yeah. Ross, you're making me blush, but listeners, <laughs> he's right. You know, he is right. It's, it is, I'm not gonna. I'm gonna be honest. I didn't find it an elegant system, but I think the results it produces are really, really interesting. There's a level of depth to them that, as you say, gets so far beyond the superficiality of sand, uh, sand rolls and sand points, or anything like that. There is a sense of of it's it's this human level. It's about real people who have to make sacrifices, um, mm-hmm. genuine sacrifices to their self image because their self image will will is is at risk. Yeah, in a way that it really isn't in many other role-playing games, if they want to to succeed or if they want to progress in in any way, it's a really interesting system. Um, I would have explained it differently. Um, I will <laughs> of say, of course, you would have, James. <laughs> it's it's in my nature. I should at this point jump in. I've been a little bit quiet up to now because my my relationship with unknown armies is is a different one. I've never played it. 
Um, and I you was, and you shot it down. I shot it down. I shot down the first edition. I was uh, John Tynes, uh, Greg's co-author on the first edition. Is John still involved? Yes, uh, John is not as deep. Was not as deeply involved in third edition as I was. Um, it was interesting. The should I digress? Should I go into a little unknown army's yeah. history here? Yes, by all means. Uh, yeah, it's it's about that. This is this is about the game. Um, yeah, you, you digress. I'll, we'll come back to me in a moment. I have a vivid memory of talking to John at some uh, some convention in the '90s or 2000s, and you know, slinging back some gin and tonics and saying, "Man, I really feel like I just kind of hooked on with you." parasitized your inspiration and like you did all the work and I just came in and cleaned up afterwards and he kind of looks at me he's like really because I feel like I just handed you this uncooked pile of ingredients and you turned it into something that actually made sense together and functioned and so this has become sort of my touchstone of a good creative uh pairing is when each of you secretly thinks the other did 70% of the work. Uh, Tynes had this loose constellation of ideas. Um, I think that avatars and adepts were in there and, uh, you know, some ideas for the cosmology, but I came up with a lot of the details and the mechanics in first edition. And so we did that and it did okay. And John was the driving force behind Second Edition, which is the single book, and I was the driving force behind Third Edition. But in both the cases of Second and Third Edition, you know, we were all involved. And I was like, hey, John, what do you think about me doing this? And he's like, oh, that's a good idea. Have you thought about doing this? And so, yeah, there was still a back and forth. Um, so on the on – the- the, the more logistical front. It, this was originally put together. I forget the name of the publisher. There was a publisher. Archon. That I think, yes. Never actually produced anything, as I recall. No, they did. Oh, they, they did. did noir. Uh, oh, they noir did. came out. I never saw it. Um, yeah, it didn't sell very well because it had a black and white cover that while beautifully executed, everyone saw a black and white cover and thought, Oh, this is, is really cheap. Uh, mm. you know, and it's, yeah, it's a shame. So that was a, well, I'm not going to tell tales out of school. Archon (laughs) had some problems and went out of business. We'll just leave it at that. All right. Yeah. Um, So at which point John was, uh, you probably were as well, but John, I was at the time running Hogshead Publishing. Um, Mm -hmm. John showed it to me and said, would you be interested? Uh, And I said, I didn't reject it. I said, I thought it needed another editorial pass because I wasn't happy with the way that some of it was organized. Um, And John Nephew apparently came in at that point and went, no, we'll take it as is. And you very sensibly went with John Nephew, who is a man I have so much time for, um, (laughs) who has made me quite a lot of money over over the last 30 years by publishing Once Upon a Time. Um, And I think absolutely the right home for the game. Uh, Hogg said very shortly after that actually went out of business. Uh, by choice, not not uh, nothing economic. I, ju- I was burnt out after nine years. I was completely burnt out. Um, well, just think if you'd had unknown <laughs> armies, maybe you would have broke wide, and uh, you know we would we would all be wearing velvet smoking jackets right now. Not you, Rod. I am. Um, all right, fair. 
<laughs> I am the Johnny come lately, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yes, it's... Uh, the, and the other thing, something that I've mentioned in, in earlier episodes is horror, particularly modern horror, is not my taste in, in gaming. It's not a genre I have any particular affinity for. I can admire it. I can, you know, the, the craftsmanship, the work that's gone into this, the cleverness in it. But I could not necessarily say this is a, a great game because I would, if I were to play it, I would not be getting the nuance out of it because I just, I wouldn't be enjoying the genre. Um, so... If you don't I'm, like modern horror, man, current events must bug the shit out of you. <laughs> oh, Jesus, yeah. It's, um... Let's not talk about that. Yeah, things. Yeah. By the time this comes out, everything may have changed. We may all be glowing, there we go. frankly. There we go. Um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Well, moving back to, uh, before we get into more of the games, like character and conflict resolution mechanics, the, the, on what the game does on a broad sense, and Greg mentioned this earlier, is that it's about uh, you create a group of player characters, the standard, uh, you know, cabal, and uh, in a session zero, you define what the group's goals are. Uh, and so the the game is not like Delta Green, for example, has a very, very specific character or campaign framing device. You are Delta Green agents. You're investigating evil supernatural things and trying to stop them. Uh, in Unknown Armies, it is here is a weird setting. And then you define use as much or as little of it as you want. And then you, the player characters and GM collaboratively come up what this game is about. It is much more of a modern horror weirdness, uh, uh, toolkit game of building, uh, and there are campaign frames to sort of explain like what your characters could be doing, but there's, there's no set of like, you have to, this whole game is about investigating cults and, and shooting cultists and blowing up monsters or this, or being a vampire or being that it is, um, very much. If you like this, this weirdness, here's how to immer- play a game where your characters are immersed in it. But, um, th- well, so and I, I mean, I feel like that's an important note to make because uh, you yeah. can see, you can see the ways in which it was done by, People who'd done a lot of work on Delta Green and were ready to do something that was very different from Delta Green while still being mm-hmm. modern horror. Delta the the mission structure of Delta Green is one of its primary strengths in play. Is that mm-hmm. everyone jumps in knowing that okay, we are gonna be told to go to this distant place and confront terrible, uncomfortable, unpleasant things, and we'll do it because that's Delta Green. Mm -hmm. Whereas, and that's great, but it's not the only way to do things. And Delta Green is essentially conservative in the sense that you are trying to prevent things from happening. There is no proactive Delta Green scenario. It's always, okay, we are trying to take this bad situation and stop it from getting worse and repair the badness. You never make anything better as Delta Green. And Unknown Armies, the premise is you want to change things. You are the cultist. You are the outside force (laughs) that is saying, no, I won't accept this status quo. Fuck you. (laughs) And so... This is this can be hard for GMs because the players have a lot of agency. And I've tried to really emphasize that in third edition too, is that mm-hmm. you know, the 
in in Delta Green, you know the players are going to engage with the story because the premise of it is so firm that you really can't uncouple yourself. And Unknown Armies does the opposite, which is saying, okay, you have to want something really badly. Figure out what it is, and the whole game will be about that. Yeah. Um, as examples, um, Caleb, uh, and Caleb Stokes, uh, ran, tried to run a campaign, which fell apart because of real life scheduling reasons, but we ran three, three or four sessions of it. And the session zero goal turned out to be, all right, we all live in this one part of Kansas city. We want to create a mystic barrier around this, this 20 block area of Kansas city and pull it into another space. So it, we, we want to secede from reality. <laughs> and so we're gonna just just pull it all out and we're, we're that that's going to be it and so it was about setting these barriers so we setting the groundwork for this grand ritual to secede from reality and that's... i ran a campaign uh that was a mystic treasure hunt where the player characters eventually gone uh summoned a, a riverboat from the uh, piloted by the ghost of mark twain to go up to mississippi to find uh, a secret aztec treasure buried by a pirate um, nice and, cool yeah. yeah and so it's uh yeah it's it's very much because i was reading about like real life treasure hunts and how weird and mystical and occult they get um <laughs> you know and so i was inspired by that uh so yeah, it, it, it's what you make of it. it it's uh, which is both a a great strength if you know if you have great ideas, but like it's <laughs> you know uh, it can be daunting uh, for some GMs uh, for some groups to tackle because it doesn't. There's no there's no like frame to here's the thing you do a monster of the week. It's yeah um, yeah I've tried so hard to help GMs with that in third edition, but. The thing that we got with the first two editions was people, you know, first edition, people were like, this is a great setting. What am I supposed to do with it? And we're like, oh, you just do stuff and have things happen. Mm -hmm. And so then for second edition, John's like, okay, we're going to have these campaign frameworks and this is going to, you know, say what the, you know, and, and everyone will know and we'll get on the same page. And those worked better than first edition. But for third, I was like, what if we just trust the players even more and say, okay, we are going to trust you to be grown-up adults who don't have to have the GM preach you the goals of the campaign for you. You can decide them. And mm -hmm. instead of the, the GM being this tyrant, you can all you know get along well in democracy because if we've learned anything it's that democracy works it functions and that everyone <laughs> can find a compromise that that works mm -hmm. out okay that's yeah. what we've learned we've yep. learned that we have. we have um yeah it's a very large chunk i mean the the second book third edition comes in in three books i don't think we've said that yet um the second book is the gm's book and it basically it launches in the first thing you get here's some gm advice and then like the first half of the book is a solid gm advice <laughs> the gm advice just does not stop it, it it continues even when they're talking about structural stuff it's yeah i was i was genuinely surprised just how much gm advice there is in in there and it is very much on the let your players take the lead let your players dictate 
kind of what they want to do, what direction they want, what what shape they want the campaign to be, what they want their characters to do, and then react to that. And uh, it reminded me in... It's interesting you were saying um, the reaction you had to first edition, because I think that was partly my reaction as well. And I likened it to Over the Edge, which is, is another game that I absolutely love. I think all the elements, all the ingredients are absolutely fascinating. And you stick it in the oven and it never quite bakes into anything. I had a, really, <laughs> I had a long time trying to write adventures for Over the Edge and it never quite came together. Um, and I felt, I think first edition had that problem. Third edition is much more, make this the player's problem. Show them some things, let them decide what they want to want to do, and then here is the toolkit for interesting ways that you can react to that and make their lives difficult and interesting. Um, and I think it works. I think it works really well. Um, Thank you. I think it's it's a very interesting. I I prefer this approach, to be honest, to the Powered by the Apocalypse um, thing, the which I found. We go back and listen to it again, uh, Ludo narrative dissonance fans. Um, I, I found it too mechanical. Uh, I found it dry, which I know isn't a reaction that many people have. But uh, yeah. this is, I would say, probably about the same level of mechanics, but it just feels more human, um, more character-based. I think this is a little more complex than Powered by the Apocalypse, but, um, I mean, certainly they're not massively different uh, in terms of complexity. Um, but that's, I think, a good segue to get into how the game does what it does. Uh, yes. Is. We we kind of started with the shot gauges. Sorry, um, I, I got ahead yeah. of, of things. No, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I mean, I'm so excited gauges, by it. Yeah, the shot gauges are... are You're lovely. sorry and you should be sorry, James. <laughs> I'm um, always so, I'm British. I'm sorry for everything. <laughs> so we have talked about the uh, uh, shot gauges. We also talk about the... Um, so there's also the passions, which you mentioned earlier, which are in the game called rage, noble and fear. Um, and then the, uh, the, instead of having skills, you have identities, which are another core character mechanic. Um, so, uh, I feel like we should talk about identities first, because that's sort of like, aside from your gauges, which give you your stand, every character has like the connect and struggle abilities. Just yes, there are 10 like. standard abilities that mm-hmm. everyone can do, but they never get really, really good. You can put a lot more points into an identity, and most identities substitute for one of those abilities. Yeah, have we explained exactly what an identity is? Uh, an identity is a stat that is, it's measured in a percentage uh, rating. And it is something that is key to who you are. So if I was statting up Greg Stolze as an Unknown Armies character, it would be, I am a writer. And that is, you know, my identity. And you all can debate how many percentiles I would have in it. But it would probably substitute for the the ability for status, which is the ability to make money and sort of get along your position in society, how many people you know and how uh, much they like you and how easily you can find someone who'll do you a favor. Um, I would probably give it the unique trait of you can make products that people enjoy. And, you know, and some third thing, um, you can set your identities up to protect your gauges so that, uh, you know, as a horror writer, I probably wouldn't actually do this because I don't actually believe my horror writing has made me more able to deal with 
gross trauma, but you could you could make a case that okay, yeah, because so and so is a horror writer, if he sees violent stuff, he can resist that by just mentally telling himself, "No, no, no. This is this is just grist for the mill. This is mm-hmm. I knew these research. things happened." Uh so or you could take um oh, I'm trying to think of some of the good examples. You could have an identity of I am a devout Christian, and in some ways it protects you and it gives you social status and it it uh, allows you to connect with people. Or you could set it up as I am a devout asshole Christian, and now it substitutes for status, but it gives me the ability to attack people's uh, personalities when I feel that they are sinners. And it, 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 you know, gives me the ability to make people feel small. And so you can set things, you can set identities up to do a lot of different stuff. In the, in book one, they actually, you actually have a, a very good section of example identities. Um, and like one of them is quiet. Like I'm quiet. Of course I can be around people who normally freak out at strangers, get close to wildlife, avoid being overheard. Substitutes for secrecy, feature substitutes for notice, feature resist challenges to isolation. So, um, so yeah, yeah. there you get someone who is okay being alone more than most people are okay being alone. One of the things that people seem to like about identities is the of course I can aspect Mm -hmm. Mm. because a lot of games will set up these very specific skills and there's a whole bunch of them and unless mm-hmm. you have that skill you can't do something and unless something is classified as being under a skill i mean it's like if you do if if you were a great truck driver but didn't have the mechanic skill some games would not let you roll to change a tire and i'm like that's ridiculous of course it uh, of course a truck driver can change a, change a tire and so yeah. it gives you to to fit you into the identity and explain it to the gm and others there's this section of well because i'm this of course i can do these things so uh you know for the character i'm playing now or was was playing in the the game uh, the unknown armies game that that uh, i was most recently in it's had a character who was an ex rock star so it's <laughs> of course i can get backstage of course I know where to find a Coke dealer. <laughs> yeah. I really like this because I feel like this is like the difference between like a, a journeyman game designer and like an experienced game designer is to design a game. The journeyman designs a game as they think it should be played and with the very specific skills. Of course, you know, they, that person thinks, well, yeah. Uh, but the the master of the veteran game designer designs games as people actually play them. <laughs> um, and like, I just have an example. I'm running currently a Heart the City Beneath campaign, which is a beautiful and a very interesting game. Um, and uh, I kind of wish we had voted on it for uh, our listeners had voted for it. But which um, one is this? A Heart the City Beneath, and it's from a great okay. game designer, Grant Howitt. Uh, the the sort of sequel side game to Spire. Okay. Um, and the thing one, but their skill list is very minimal. There's only like uh, like ten skills in it, but I've had the devil of a time because they have a hunt and a kill skill and kill is the uh, combat skill. But then hunt 
like one of my player characters plays a character who started with hunt and not kill. And so when fight comes out, uh, you know, I'm going to shoot the thing with my bow. It's like, okay, well, roll kill. Well, I don't have kill. Okay, you're playing a hunter with a bow, but you don't have the combat skill. Like, yeah. Uh, I just, okay, you can roll hunt. Like, it, it, it was a very odd choice to have a very specific skill, hunt, track down someone or something that's trying to get away from you, and kill in the lives and of people and things with your weapons or bare hands. And so, like, um, sort of a rare miss in that. And so I feel... I really like identities because then player characters have, they can build the kind of character they envision in their head um, and not have to like pick, you know, from 50 skills or 20 skills or even 10 skills uh, if they don't feel like those match with what their character is doing. Well, and it also means that one person's uh, I am a gym rat can be very different from another person's I am a gym rat. And I think that's Mm -hmm. a, a, a feature more than a bug. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I quite like that. Um, and thank you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, now, um, to be fair, a lot of the times I've run, I've actually run more one shots of unknown armies mm-hmm. in campaigns. Um, and so I've used, uh, the, the, and kind of one of the, uh, you kind of hide the, the easy character creation method, the, the, the lonely hearts club version, yeah. uh, which I wound up using way more than the, I've only done the campaign proper thing once. Well, that's because I want people to do the campaign, but you know, you know, the old Italian saying, wish in one hand, shit in the other, see which fills up first. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I have so many ideas for one shots. I'm mm-hmm. never going to get them done. Uh, if I don't like, like we just get, we just got to get it done. Well, you know, you can you can do one shots too. The and the the long campaign that I was recently in started out with the GM saying, "Oh no, we're not doing the third edition style character generation. You're all just in this small town, Canadian town, and your goal is to figure out what's going on with the arson." And we're like, mm-hmm. "Oh, well, uh, okay," and that worked okay too. So, Russ, how does it work as a one shot? Because it reads very much like a campaign style game, as if the the mechanics and a lot of the character stuff is only really going to play out over multiple sessions. And it really, I mean, a lot of the writing, the GM advice, is assuming a multiple session game. It didn't feel to me like a game that would necessarily work well for for one shots. How does it? How does it go? I mean, in my experience, it it handles beautifully because, again, you can like. Um, and also, like uh, another thing about the setting is, I ignore quite a bit of the setting in my one shot because it's a one shot. It's a very focused uh, game. Um, you know, any any given role playing game, you're going to ignore a certain percentage of the rules. So a lot of the oh, stuff yeah. about relationships and uh, characters, uh, the, and obviously the goal mechanics, uh, those go. But like, uh, I've been able to craft one thing that I ha- that has happened is we've done one shots, but with reoccurring characters. So when I get a new mm. idea people use the same characters. So there, it's kind of a campaign. Uh, and that's where it's a stealth uh, campaign, a backdoor yeah, campaign. Um, so on role-playing public radio, RPP or actual play, uh, I think one of the best in terms of the role-playing games I've ever run uh, was a game called Ghosts and Coffee. Uh, oh, yeah. Two players. And uh, it's about going to... The, the premise is... Uh, the characters hear a rumor about a uh, diner 
that if you go to and you're the only one in there, um, then you can the you could just think of a person uh, and that person will come and have a meal with you. And that person can be alive or dead and they'll have to be truthful wow. when they talk to you. Um, and it's heart wrenching. I, yeah. I strongly recommend that podcast. I, I listen to that and I'm like, Oh man, it's an honor to have been part of creating, you know, of, of <laughs> making this possible. Yeah. And, uh, those same characters, um, have been in other, uh, uh, one shots, but, um, it, it, it runs really beautifully, uh, as a one shot because it's once you, sort of know the system well enough to run it. Uh, again, it's a percental system. It's very easy for characters uh, to, for players to pick up in my experience, especially if they, if they played Cthulhu, Call of Cthulhu or some other mm -hmm. percental system. It just, everything just kind of clicks. And uh, so uh, if you look at the, the lonely hearts, uh, the lonely single, sorry, uh, I keep saying lonely hearts, uh, the it's page 53 on book one. And, mm -hmm. um, it just gives you like a, a an eleven point list of things to do uh, to make a character. So uh, so I can I can make a character in fifteen minutes if I have an idea because uh, it it's just come up with your passions, come pick, make some identities, and um, you know set, set your, your gauges. Set your notches. Yeah, set well, your and I think part of the reason that it. Uh, Despite being designed towards campaign play, I do think that it works well for limited stories or one shots because it's character focused and the rules support that so that when you get this character, you immediately know, okay, yeah, this I can just look down his gauges and this is someone who was very lonely throughout most of their life and has endured some terrible helplessness, but, you know, has has still managed to maintain their integrity and their and that's before you even hit the identities. So mm. when you when you get a character in this, it's like being prepared for a role in a play or a film. It's like, you know, you know it, it I I like to think that I have built-in support for the kind of actor like inhabiting of a role after the identities there the the passions and i kind of want to talk about the basic uh dice rolling mechanic because i think the passions are a great way to segue into that because uh you have three passions rage noble and fear each one once per session i believe you can say this evokes my rage i hate bullies i see a person getting bullied i'm gonna punch the bully um I rolled a 91. I'm going to invoke my passion to flip that, flip-flop it to a 19, and thus I would succeed. Um, is that a That is correct, yes. Yeah. Or you could say, I rolled a 99, I'm going to re-roll it. So you can either okay. flip-flop it or re-roll it, but only once per session. Per, Each character, uh, passion, per, per passion. Each yeah. character also has an obsession, so there's something that you just cannot stop thinking about and it, it occupies you and you attach that to one identity and any role you make with that identity, you can flip flop and that's not limited. So that's that makes one of your identities really much, much drastically more likely to succeed. And so there are several mechanics in the game to let you uh, flip-flop or re-roll, uh, and in terms of opposed rolls, uh, it's a percentile system It uses the uh, the blackjack system like Delta Green. Highest that doesn't go over wins uh, in an opposed roll. 
Um, and that that's the very basic. Now, of course, there are more complex systems. Um, there, uh, you know, combat uses the wound system, um, which... Uh, but players don't need to worry about that because... Players don't need to worry about it. That's true. Players do not, never know how many wounds their character has. Uh, you know that you start with 50 unless you have an identity that gives you more wounds. Um, but uh, but all yeah, you, all attacks are described narratively, and mm-hmm. so I I find that really is quite important and quite effective at making people react realistically. You know, when you tell someone, "Oh yeah, he's he's grabbed your arm and yanked it so hard that something went pop and it hurts, and now it's not." It hurts every time you open or close your elbow. That is much more evocative than, mm-hmm. oh, you've taken five points of damage, my friend. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, uh, modern horror combat is going to probably come up uh, uh, sooner or later. Not necessarily, but it is <laughs> certainly uh, uh, a want to. And uh, there is a, a bit of writing. I believe you also had it in second edition. That is, it also was. I think it goes all the way back to first, doesn't it? First, edition. maybe it's just yeah. second. Maybe it was second. But yeah, um, this is. I, I I first encountered second edition, but that was the first edition I had access to. Tynes um, wrote this, the intro to the combat section, and yeah, everybody loves it. If you want to read it, it, you should it, it read comes it. up frequently in RPG discussions. Almost as much as shot gauges, maybe even more, because when people talk about combat and role playing games, we're like, "Well, if you, you if you you should you want to think about combat as a game designer, you should read this to to, to make you rethink it." Um, somewhere out there is someone who had loving parents, watched clouds on a summer's day, fell in love, <laughs> lost a friend, is kind to small animals, and knows how to say please and thank you, and yet somehow the two of you are going to end up in a dirty little room with one knife between you and you are going to have to kill that human being. And uh, yeah, so that it's very evocative and uh, times being times. Yeah. Um, And that's the first thing. Uh, And then the next section is six ways to stop a fight. Uh, Maybe. Yeah. So again, uh, emphasizing that combat is extremely dangerous in this system. Uh, that, and that's, that's by design. One of the things, uh, I set up is that if you roll an O one while you are attacking someone with a, a, you know, a knife or a gun or some kind of, you know, what would be classified as a deadly weapon? If you roll an O one, you just kill the person. And if they attack you with one and they roll an O one, they just kill you. And so mm. when guns and knives come out, it is real in a way that I think a lot of action movie infused systems are not. And, and I've seen this happen there in the very first uh, play test, not the first session, but the first play test campaign for third edition, there was a scene where one of the characters uh, has an argument with his estranged father-in-law in a parking lot and the next thing you know, he's swinging a shovel at his father-in-law, who pulls at who being a dirtbag, pulls out a knife. They are waving this, these at each other. And he rolls an O one, and I'm like, "You just killed your father-in-law." He's like, "Oh." I'm like, "Yeah." He's just lying there dead in the parking lot. What you doing with the body? Because 
It's, yeah, his eyes are wide open. A fly just landed on the part and he doesn't blink. He's dead. He's, you killed him. And it was, it was an intense role-playing experience. And, you know, him enlisting his friend, the bent cop, to help him eliminate the body was <laughs> extremely gritty. And it was a satisfying session all around. And I've, I had this happen in a, um, a, a one shot I ran it for a at a convention where, you know, these guys have piled out of their car and surrounded this this woman that they've been told to investigate. And she's yelling at them that she'll never give them what they want. And they're they're all, you know, being real, real tough and in, uh, and intimidating. I'm like, OK, she's just going to swing at you with that tire iron and seeing their faces when the O one comes up. And I'm like, <laughs> wow, she just hit this dude in the head and he's down and they're like we get in the car and drive away <laughs> and i'm like horror achieved oh wow yeah <laughs> good times good yeah, times very good times makes gming all worth it <laughs> yeah i've not done a lot of combat in the system I, i've tried to run games where that is not the point like so I don't have a lot of experience with it. Uh, you know, I've run a lot of sessions. Uh, You're I mean. missing out on some of the fun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's true. Um, I, of course, have, have even less experience. So I want to ask how much of, of a given, given how little time combat actually takes up, um, in terms of pages of the rule book, and this is a given for role-playing games, games generally, mm-hmm. if there is magic in a role-playing game, it will take up a huge amount of the rules. Yes. Usually with spell lists, um, but it does seem to a casual reader, and certainly as I was reading first edition, my feeling was this is this is the flip side of, of Ars Magica, a game I believe you hadn't read at the time, Greg. I don't um, think I had. I'd maybe played it once or twice, but not read it. Yeah, it's but you know Ars Magica is all about the magic. It's all about how the magic is created and 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 all the rest of that. And and certainly reading. 20 years ago, um, Unknown Armies, it felt like the flip side of that. It felt like, from the way it was presented, that magic was at the heart of it. This down and dirty emphasis on, on the dirty magic system, where you can take anything that you're you're obsessed by and make it the focus of your own your own magic. That you can. Um, which is, it's, it's brilliant, it's creative, it's often very funny. How <laughs> much of, how much is the game intended to, to center on that? Because it for, can as vary I said, a, lot. a lot. So uh, most most groups will have an adept or two. And the way magic works in Unknown Armies, we talked about how every character is obsessed with something. Mm-hmm. In Unknown Armies, if you get obsessed with something deeply enough and in a way that is counter to how most people regard it, you can break reality. You can, you know, yell at the entire cosmos. No, I'm I'm right and you're wrong and you're going to get out of my way. Guns are not tools for killing people. Guns are the essential implements by which we navigate the the borderline between the individual and society. And that's fulminaturges who are gun magicians who lose their powers if they shoot people. Uh, You know, you've got these, uh, you know, one of the ones I wrote up for uh, third edition was the camera turges, uh, who are are obsessed Mm. with 
film images and believe that these portray and control reality in a way that digital can't, that digital images are inherently untrue and film images are inherently uh, reveal true wisdom. And so if you are obsessed with image or cameras, you can become a camera turge. And now it's like, okay, I've taken this picture of someone and I'm going to tear the picture in half and they will get terrible wounds on their body where the tear is. Or I've taken a picture of someone and I can develop it in a way that I will see their aura and their mood in real time. Every time I look at that picture, I'll know what's happening with them. And so these are the kinds of magics that Unknown Armies adepts do. But the price is pretty high. Uh, to cast a spell, you need, you know, basically you'd call it mana or, uh, or you know, your vis or whatever. You need charges. And for little magics, you use little charges. And for big magics, you use significant charges. And for world-changing incredible magics, you have to get major charges. And, you know, little charges are easy to get. Medium charges, kind of a hassle. Major charges, you get one or two of those in your life. Mm -hmm. If that. Yeah. yeah. Moreover, your behavior is extremely constrained. Uh, every magic system has a taboo, something you cannot do. Uh, so with the, the gun mages, it's you can't actually shoot people. Uh, you can threaten. You can use magic to make them believe they've been shot. You can, you know, use your magic to make you appealing and seem powerful. But you can't just shoot a guy. Uh, and if you do that, all your magic drains away. You have to start again, laboriously building up your charges. So that is how magic works in Unknown Armies, or how being an adept works. The other path to mystical power is being an avatar, which is in it, simpler mechanics, but more involved with the setting. So we'll we'll get into that if you guys want to get into the the metaphysics of I, I do want to talk about adepts a bit because um, I have uh, I really do I really do like the charge system because um, the charge system one encourages role playing in in specific mm. ways there are prompts for play that are initiated by the player for the most part because the player is like I need to do this thing in order to get a charge, which is what I want, uh, in order to do the cool thing I want to pull off. Um, and it also, sh it, it like, and so what player character, what players do is they, <laughs> the tendency is to like, think of your character and then, well, my character, I'm going to set my character's life up in such a way that I can get charges easily. And, uh, then you're like, well, that's just role playing. You're playing obsessive, adept you've, you've <laughs> put your entire life around this weird school of magic. you've fallen into the trap you've fallen into the trap exactly like i'm going to be an agromancer i'm going to have a farm like yeah well that's the system working as it did and you didn't you didn't rule you didn't min max your way out of it. Like, um charges I, uh, i'm uh, really whole, happy with agromancers can i just say i'm like yeah. did i find a way to make farming cool Damn. Yeah. Um, so. That's actually one of the player characters in Caleb's 
campaign was an agromancer. That became a whole thing uh, is that he had a farm right outside of town. And, you know, he's like, well, I'm going to go kill a chicken. So I got to So I can cast a spell, <laughs> you know, that kind of, um, Agromancers and, are all about taking control of nature and, you know, the way they charge up is, oh, you must raise an animal and then slaughter it. And, yeah. you know, uh, to get a bigger charge, you have to, oh, it's got to be like a big animal. And to get a major, I think, I think the dark way to get major charges is they can do human sacrifice. Yeah, that so, wicker man shit. Uh, yep. Uh, <laughs> like, like uh, the, uh, I played a cinemancer. Ah, I love that too. Um, and one thing about getting charges is you cannot use magic to do the activity. So like, um, which is important, especially for the major charges. Like the, uh, I actually, in the campaign I ran, I had the player characters help an NPC cinemancer try to get a major charge. And this, uh, NPC cinemancer was wealthy and was doing a film, was making a movie in the campaign. And what he was trying to do was and so the major charge is is none of these tropes and cliches ever happen in real life yet if the cinemancer can get people to act out one of these without knowing it's a cliche she uh she can get a major charge this must be planned by the cinemancer and those involved cannot be in on it but the cinemancer can much spend as much time and effort as possible to encourage people to act it out so basically the player characters had to help the cinemancer do a meet cute two people fall in love while they're working on this movie that he's making and then he had to get a burned out hollywood uh, a big city person uh rekindle their love of life by by helping <laughs> small town people uh, <laughs> and they couldn't use magic to do it uh and so oh, fantastic that that worked really well uh and it was it drove several sessions of, of play and um the player characters later figured out that the cinemancer used the major charge to make Guillermo del Toro's uh, Mountains of Madness a real movie. Um, <laughs> Let's be it. frank. Yeah. Who among us wouldn't do that if we yeah. had the magical power to do it? Uh, well, they also found a person who's like, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? And no one knew who that person was. And all they could figure out that was the Cinemancer's enemy, who he really hated. Uh, and now he just destroyed their identity so that no one could ever know who that person was. Um, wow. So, you know, maybe maybe it was a, a, a twofer or something. But, um, yeah, uh, I really like how it encourages the player characters to initiate action. Um, and uh, also the spells themselves are really in interesting. Like a minor charge for the Cinemancer is the banana peel gag. Spend a charge, <laughs> throw a banana, and then a person will slip on it. Um, or I'm, you know, stock wardrobe, put on hospital scrubs. And then you can go into any hospital and people will just believe you. So, um, or my favorite, I think the single favorite one is, does this smell like chloroform? Uh, <laughs> put a rag over a person's mouth and then cause them to pass out and not actually kill them, which is what doing that in real life would probably do. Um, so yeah, uh, it's, it's really cool and really fun. And um, creates a lot of prompts for for things to happen in the game, which I feel like uh, interesting things happen in the game, which is the sort of the challenge of role playing games at their core. <laughs> yes, it, it it encourages the players to be clever and to feel that they are. If if there's humor, if there's intelligence, it comes from them rather than the game reacting to them. 
um, mm-hmm. which is, you know, a, a holy grail of, of good game design, which I, I think I may have achieved in Baron Munchausen, but we'll come on to that uh, okay. <laughs> soon. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, just from reading it, you get the spark of, as I said, I think it's, there's a lot of mechanics in there governing, governing a lot of things, but they are pushing everything in direction to encourage this, not just relying on the mechanics to do stuff for you, but to come up with clever reasons and clever thinking around that to make stuff happen within the narrative that then fire off the mechanics and cause the mechanical effects. It's, it's elegant. Thank mm-hmm. you. I, w- I was aiming for elegant. <laughs> um, and I mean, part, part of this, I feel like, I think I've got a good balance in Unknown Armies. I've been more and more thinking of GM'd games. You have sort of a three-sided situation, and the three sides are the players, the GM, and the dice, and that you know you you fall back on the dice when you want something to get chaotic, and unknown armies permits you to get pretty chaotic, but the chaos is bounded, and that you know things will get very chaotic if you're not doing the thing you're really obsessed with or something you're good at, but still sometimes even if you suck, you will still occasionally just pull off that half-court shot just out of random luck because percentage rolls are swingy, which people think they don't like that, but when it pans out for them, they love it. (laughs) Yeah, so true. And then, of course, the other system is the avatar system, where the Ah. avatars, so... uh, All right, so should I try and do a nutshell Unknown Armies cosmology? All right, Mm -hmm. so... The universe gets created and there are people in it because people are the most important thing in the universe in Unknown Armies. Eventually, people develop enough that social roles appear. When enough people believe in something like the true king or the mother is usually an early one or the dispenser of justice or the hunter in the wilderness – Once enough people have that abstract idea in their mind, the individual person who best embodies it leaves material reality, enters a higher state where probability is made manifest, and from there, they contribute to the governing of the world. They influence events, not on an individual scale, They are now too large to even perceive most individuals, but they can change likelihoods, cause coincidences, and shape the world. These are the secret masters, the invisible clergy. At first, there's only a few of them, but as society gets more and more evolved, more and different archetypes ascend and take on this this role in this sort of uh, cosmic court. So you get the fool, you get the businessman, you get the demagogue, you get the firebrand, all kinds of different people. You get the inventor. And there's, you know, Unknown Armies has, has loads and loads of these. The people back in material reality who act out these roles have things go their way. Uh, circumstances tend to break in their favor. 
And the closer they get to their archetype, the more uh, wild the coincidences become or the more overtly unnatural the effects they can can cause by drawing on their uh, their archetype become. One of the archetypes is the flying woman, uh, you know, the, the liberated woman who d- exists outside the boundaries set for her by men uh, and, and traditional masculinity. And if you get your score high enough in Avatar, the masterless uh, Avatar, the flying woman, you can literally fly. You can literally fly like Supergirl, but you have to be really close to the archetype to get that. Most people never get that close. When there are 333 archetypes, the universe is destroyed, the archetypes all fuse into a single entity, which recreates the cosmos, dying in the process, and the whole system starts again. This means that if you put positive, loving people in as archetypes, or make sure positive archetypes ascend, that it's the healer that's up there instead of the warmonger, the next cosmos could be a better place than this one. But if you allow the world's mind to be occupied with roles that are cruel and oppressive, the next generation of the the next edition of the cosmos could be much worse and every bad thing that happens all the oppression and injustice of the world all the crime and cruelty and viciousness is because it's a reflection of someone who was in the invisible clergy during the last session mm-hmm. so once you find out about this cosmology, a lot of times, you know, the the game is, all right, I am going to replace the warmonger with the peacekeeper, or I am going to replace the true king with the true executive, or I am going to replace, you know, X old retrograde archetype with something new and better. And that can be a really exciting, fun, creativity-driving objective for players. Okay, did I cover everything? Yeah, I think. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of like the invisible clergy uh, cosmology is like what drives a lot of the movers and shakers in the, in the setting in terms of like if you want to run a, a, a campaign where the player characters are dealing with factions like the New Inquisition or Max Attack or or the Sleepers or any number of these. Uh, written up entities uh, the, the the invisible clergy comes in that's like the end game of all the secret conspiracies and cults like that's the 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 goal is to remake reality in their image um, but that's the that's like, yeah. my most recent unknown armies novel deals in part with the question of uh, someone who's like no 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 the necessary servant is you know is a corrupted archetype we need to replace it with the servant of integrity who will you know do what it takes instead of just doing what they're told and there's a lot of debate about um you know i'm not sure you always get good outcomes when people just follow what they think is the best thing to do instead of following orders 
Uh, player characters can walk a path of the avatar, which means they get an avatar uh, skill. Uh, an identity, yes. Yeah, an identity, um, which is given a percentage ability. And then, uh, unlike adepts, they don't need to worry about charges. They just, uh, when your ability is at a certain level, you can activate a certain ability. Um, like the Explorer avatar, uh, up from one, if you have at least 1% and up to 50%, um, you, well, as soon as you have it, you can, it, as long as you're seeking something, you don't have to worry about things like thirst and hunger. You can, well, you can ignore them. Uh, you can ignore sunburn and frostbite and cuts from songs as long as you're seeking something, um, uh, not going to the movies, but you're looking for something hidden as one example and like the survivor archetype guess what their their abilities help them survive things uh and uh yeah and so it's one interesting quirk is also that avatars do not need to be aware of this cosmology at all they or that they are avatars they can just be doing what they're doing so intently that they are walking the path of the avatar unconsciously um, but it's and, very hard to really rack up the high numbers unless you're doing it on purpose. Avatars yeah. also have taboos. And so if you break your taboo as an avatar, you just lose points off the identity. I'm trying to think of a good example. Uh, well, I'm looking at the avatar of the Explorer right now. Avatar, the taboo is they must find something new to them each day. It can be information, yeah. part lace, or a new person. Uh, they must not have encountered it before. Um, the flip side is the avatar must never create any cultural artifacts of her own. Whatever discoveries to me be made, uh, it must be natural or created by someone else. No faking it. So, um, you know, technically surfing the internet might, well, probably surfing the internet would not count. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure trivia quite, quite fits yeah. the description. Yeah. But so, maybe a Wikipedia deep dive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you're not going to get very far if you're just doing that, though. Um, yeah. So, uh, like we, I know in Caleb's campaign, there was an avatar of the true king that was uh, running a furniture store and had uh, as their kingdom. Um, and so they they had an entire crew that were working for them, and they were treated as a king. You know, at a very nice round table in the furniture store. <laughs> um, <laughs> And uh, we had we couldn't get when we were getting close to their turf. We had we were cordially invited to the court, um, you know, to Camelot furniture or something like that. Um, nice. So yeah, it's it's it. it you know, uh, one thing I've seen on the internet and one discussion of it was uh, a campaign framework of treating every character on The Simpsons as one of the 333 avatars. So like, oh good uh, lord. Yeah, wow. and not just the major characters, but the minor ones. The you know the one of Principal Skinner and uh, Mo uh. Sislak and uh, uh, so on and so forth, because they do behave in certain ways that could be construed as a kind of avatar. So oh, avatar, Mister Burns, <laughs> like, <laughs> the uh, vulture so, capitalist. He even looks yeah. like a vulture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, a lot of great ideas from that. Very very prompts for player actions. Um, and it's a different style. Uh, and, um, and of course these, both these magic systems are optional for player characters. You can just play, uh, there is technically a third system where you can, your identity can have a supernatural component to it. You can be a psychic, 
Yep. Or uh, a palm reader or, or uh, I see a dead de- people. Literal death touch or a death touch. You know, you know, the dim mock and you can kill people with your hands. Uh, Eventually. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, so uh, a very, very versatile system. Um, I think we're kind of into how people play it at this point. Yes. Um, well, I think we touched on how people play yeah. it with the campaign versus one shot and yeah that's true and how it it can handle both i i obviously i am deeply biased but i think it plays better as a campaign but i kind of tend to like everything better as a campaign (laughs) yeah Um, um i i tend to do more one shots just because i have so many games i want to try out i can't commit just because you're promiscuous yes the grass is greener on the on the (laughs) other side Uh, yeah um i've seen you looking at an invisible sun you little slut (laughs) (laughs) i i do want to talk about um one thing about unknown armies uh that i found fascinating um is how it has permeated uh tabletop gaming culture in a way that other games haven't um and like once you've read unknown armies um how it kind of changes you a little bit at least um so one of the first thing exposures i had to unknown armies was this thread on rpg.net called make up your own unknown army style rumors oh that was a great thread <laughs> yeah that was a winner hundreds of pages long and it was just people throwing out one sentence urban uh, urban legend style rumors about unknown armies. And every single one of them could have been integrated. Ah, there were some duds in there, but for the most part, yeah, there was a lot of gold. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this, okay, so here it is. Uh, it, it started in 2008. Uh, there's a place uh, somewhere in the American highways where all motel owners vacation. Uh, the people you see on the Jerry Springer show are actually bred specifically to appear on the show. Um, you remember the eighties? No, you didn't. It never happened. Do you really believe the entire country would embrace leg warmers, mullets, Ronald Reagan, the sweet sound of the sine wave? All of it was created and sloppily. Um, <laughs> and the, the thing that I is, uh, and I've started seeing this more recently is people like, um, saying, oh man, this is some unknown army shit. You know, this is like, you know, uh, just referring to weird news, you know, whatever, like Florida man is an avatar. Absolutely. Uh, or yes. Someone trying to become an avatar. Um, uh, that is very, or is an unnatural creature. <laughs> yeah. Is an unnatural creature. Um, and when, when I picture Florida man, I see a Bigfoot in a high vis vest. Yeah. Um, there's, a lot of unknown army, like I've seen people talking about this is some unknown army shit. We're talking about you know current news, just the unreality of it. Um, hey, the, I will. Yeah. It is always disturbing to me when unknown armies stuff gets real. You know about Fly to Heaven, right? Uh, no. Oh my god! So Fly to Heaven was a. Uh, a scenario I wrote in 1997. The date is important. Whoa. And the premise is someone f- attempts to hijack a jetliner and fly it into a building to ascend as the, the terrorist. So, yeah. Predicted 9-11 in Unknown Armies. Also, 
there was another thing I wrote in one of the books that had consensual uh, erotic cannibalism a few years before Armin Miwes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also, the taboo of the demagogue archetype is you can never admit that you were wrong. And when I saw a reporter ask Donald Trump, you know, what would you have done differently uh, in in your first year in office, and he just said, "I didn't make any mistakes." I'm like, "Shit!" They just tried to taboo him. Yeah. So yeah. it 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 is a better reflection of reality than we ever could have predicted it would be. I mean, we did yeah. not. We did not, John and I did not go into this planning that we were going to give people a new way to understand their lives and experiences. God, no, we just wanted to make something cool and fun. And yet, more than one person has said, Unknown Armies is a way that helps me organize my experiences. <laughs> I'm like, really? <laughs> you poor bastard. <laughs> But I yeah. Think, um, oh, I do want to mention, um, I don't know if we've, you know, we talked about it. This is a human centric game. You mentioned unnatural creatures. Um, it should be noted that there are no, mo- every monster in unknown armies, there are demons, um, but demons are dead people. They're ghosts, a type of ghost, essentially. Um, there, there are no like non-human entities that were, if they were non-human, they used to be human. They, they, everything's, they begin. Well, everything's either ex-human or a twisted reflection of humans or arose from human passion and intensity. Yeah, there are tulpas. That is a thing um, uh, that that has come up, at least the games that I've played in. Um, But yeah, there's no, like again, no Cthulhu, no um, aliens. There's never anything you won't be able to figure out eventually if you keep picking at it. And one of the things I, I tried to do with the unnatural entities in third edition is in the write-ups, there is always I, – I tried to always include a section on how do I exploit this for my own gain? And, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, well, you know, here – everybody in, the, un, in the, the underground knows that if you can capture a trash golem and take it apart, then, you know, you can use its feet to do thus and such or – you know, everybody knows that if you get this particular kind of ghost and you throw salt on it, that it has to <laughs> tell you a question. Yeah. So I, I tried to make it. And again, I think this is a little bit of the you're playing the cultist now mm-hmm. element is that you yep. get access to these these weird cheats in yeah. as, um. as payment for not being a normal person. The kind of flip side, though, is um, weirdly enough, I don't think Unknown Armies is necessarily the best fit for uh, creepypasta slash uh, SCP style horror games. Um, you know, like the latest thing right now is The Back Rooms, which is a liminal horror uh, meme slash creepypasta that's been going around. And uh, about you just wind up in some place with fluorescent lighting, looks kind of like a hotel corridor, but just goes on infinitely. And mm. there's some weird monster chasing you. And that could easily be an, an army's thing, but sounds um, like another space. Yeah. But like these creepypastas and the SCP always relies on inhuman things that are never explained at all and are mm-hmm. not very specifically not human. Um, right. And so, 
you have to keep that the you did it humans are behind everything because i know when i've been thinking of an army scenario i i i i've <laughs> run so much delta cream like and then there's a little cthulhu no wait can't have a cthulhu in it can't have, a, can't, have a, can't no shagas you know uh, yeah so um yeah that is something to keep in mind so it's not for every type of horror game. Uh, it is not perfect for every type of story. It is Though, much, it's, yeah. it's interesting you mention SCP, because um, I've been thinking about what, if I were to run Unknown Armies, I wouldn't run it straight out of the box. I'd keep all of the mechanics, but I, I'd change the background. And what I'd try, probably try and do with it is um, something like the novel Ra by QNTM. I don't know if you've come across QNTM. I have um, not. I believe a self-published British, I believe British, science fiction author best known for the novel There Is No Anti-Memetics Division, which is an SCP novel, and which is startlingly good. And I recommend very, I recommend all their work very highly. But There Is No Anti-Memetics Division is is a lot of fun. Uh, Ra is, is set in our world in which magic is discovered in, I believe, 1972. The first spell is cast in 1972, and so magic is industrialized very quickly and becomes an academic research. And it's not as simple as that. It's absolutely not as there are all there's back, backstories and backstories. And it's it's great. It's an absolute romp. And it's also very mm. cheap on, I think you can only get them as, as ebooks on Google Play. Um, well worth Man. about 50 or whatever it is of your, of your time. But it's on the Kindle store too. But yeah. I just want. But, I just want tangible books that I can leave in the bathroom for when I'm in there. Come on, people. <laughs> I, I I agree completely. Reading this stuff on my phone was not the the optimum. That I, I ended up reading it as I was walking the dog and stuff like that. It's quite. See, they have I'm a trying quite to un- declutter because I'm, so I'm like, <laughs> give me all the ebooks. I have too many books yeah. as it is. Um, <laughs> but the the point is, it's there's raw is about modern magic. There is no antimatics division. It's set very specifically in the SCP universe. Um, but there's a noticeable crossover between the two. And um, I'm not entirely sure where I'm going with here, but I think you, one could take Unknown Armies and do something slightly yep. different with it. Ra is a very human story, though different types of humans. Um, <laughs> but then so is, so is Unknown Armies, so, yes. you know, ascended humans and, and all the rest of it. I think one could, one could wonk Unknown Armies and do something similarly human and also similarly horrific um but not not with greg's original background i think it's versatile enough i think the core it is more underlying to, it can be transmuted to be fair it's much more john's original uh, concept he ah. came up with the invisible clergy and all that i cannot take credit i expanded on it and kind of tidied it in a lot of ways but yeah Okay. The the genesis is John. I mean, that's fair. Boy, that um, sounds biblical. <laughs> <laughs> One could just Wait. imagine him going, and of this tree thou shalt not absent, thou shalt definitely not eat. <laughs> yeah. It, so, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Is you can easily run an Unknown Armies game and ignore the entire cosmology of it and just do a ghost story or, you know, a slasher or any any anything you can really imagine. I mean, it would probably work pretty well for yeah. Money Heist. Mm-hmm. You could probably just do it as a crime story. Yeah. Yeah. You could do it. Yeah. An entirely mundane game, too. Um, so it, it's a very versatile 
modern system um and it's very uh and I, there's a lot of really cool things about it um and it's it's um worth re- we haven't even mentioned the book's design uh with uh, for third edition which is great um the pdfs are actually really excellent too because there's like embedded links to take uh, shortcuts to take you everywhere um i appreciated that and that's thomas uh, Dini. he did from from jump before the books were even finished he was planning out how the PDFs were going to link together. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, it's, it's if you're looking for a layout guy, Thomas Dini's a good one. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll keep that in mind. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's a really cool game. And, uh, so many good layout guys who are too expensive for me to afford now. It's, oh yeah. Layout people. Yeah. <laughs> it's the tragedy. Yeah. Yes. Um, Oh, we haven't so, even mentioned the photography yet. Pretty much all yeah. the artists, or a great percentage of the art, is photographic, mm-hmm. which gives it a really unique feel. Yeah, uh, not true. least because it's good phot- photography. Um, there have been what was that vampire knockoff or the World of Darkness knockoff that came out late nineties, early two thousands? Oh, I think I know the one you're talking Immortal? about. Immortal. That sounds right. Yeah, which was all treated, you know, stuff that had been run through a. Photoshop filter and, and did not look very good. Um, it didn't. But this, I mean, this at looked, the at the time, you know, it was okay, but it didn't age well. That's for sure. No, definitely yeah. not. Uh, there was an edition of Cyberpunk that used uh, like uh, lar- old school style GI Joe figures posed as uh, with custom <laughs> what? Yeah, I missed that one. Wow. Yeah. Uh, maybe it was Cyber Gen, but it was definitely one of the our uh, uh, yeah. Um, you anyway, can't yeah. see it because this is a podcast, but I'm just sitting here staring into the distance with my jaw slack. Yeah, yeah, that that seems like a very very odd choice. Well, it's a bold choice. Uh, yeah, you're not wrong about it being yeah. Mm, wow, I think I think Vampire Fifth. Uh, it's not exclusively photos, but they use a lot of photos. Yeah. So it's, you know, it, and I think part of it is that tech's catching up and it's yeah. easier uh, to, yeah. to do quality photos at a price that's not completely out of reach. So, but I did yeah. want it to have, I, the, the, the main thing I wanted, the, the, the main inspiration for the look of Unknown Armies third edition was post secret. Are you familiar with this? Oh, it's this art project where this guy set up this thing where it's like, send me a postcard with your secret on it. And thousands Uh. and thousands of people have, and the postcards generally are decorated in some way. And a lot of it is photo collage or just sort of graffiti style scrawls. And they're very evocative. And he's done a couple art books uh, some of them are very funny. Some of them are heartbreakingly tragic. To me, the archetypal one is that the text of it is just, I found my dad's secret porn folder. Turns out he has a fetish. And the image is just a milk carton. So it's wow. post secret is post secret will take you places. Um. Yeah. Wow. And I've and I've broken Ross. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Yeah. So. Um. I think that's 
as, I, mean, <laughs> so much, I mean, there's still so much to cover. Yeah. Um, we, we could go on. We could do a whole series just on unknown armies. But I mean, we be, I feel like we have to end at some point. At some point. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm tired. It's been yeah. a hell of a week. Oh, yeah. Um, you're uh, and, and you're hours and hours later than the rest of us. It's been. Yeah, it's yeah. 11 o'clock at night. Yeah. Oh, we got uh, we to gotta so, let James get to bed. Yeah. But. Um, so thank you all so much for, of course, those of you back to Kickstarter. Thank you yes. uh, for everyone who's listening to this. Um, and uh, our next episode will be about uh, the adventures of Baron Munchausen, uh, the game. Um, the Extraordinary Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Uh, sorry, corrected. Yes, The Extraordinary The Adventures, adventures. of Baron Munchausen is the Terry Gilliam movie, and I can get into trouble for that. Not ah, to be confused yes. with the quotidian adventures of Baron Munchausen. Um now, before... I'm looking forward to it, and it, it'll be a lot less homework than this one was. But, yeah. <laughs> it is it is shorter, yes. Fred Schwert, thank you, Fred Schwert, for ba- for your your support and backing. Uh, and thank you, Jeremy, uh, for supporting the Kickstarter. And Shelby, um, that's all the information I have. But uh, our gratitude is enormous, nonetheless. Thank you for for supporting us. All right. And we'll talk to you all next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.